0: All right, so I know we usually kick off with a joke about me drinking too much, but I'm, like, so out of it on painkillers after crashing my mountain bike that I'm not even sure I need it.
1: Well, luckily for you, I've made it up because somehow I found some cognac in the cupboard. So there you go.
0: (laughs) You're such a fancy man. What is this?
1: (laughs) Well, just to, like, satisfy you and your class perceptions of me, I mixed it with Pepsi, so
0: you know. (laughs) Is that legal?
1: I hear that we've got a lot of feedback on the previous few episodes, Chris, so I'll
0: pass it over to you. The most exciting one is that my uncle, this is the uncle who works in space, although one of his comments was to correct me and say he does not literally work in space, he possibly works in the space business, which I guess I knew because when I went and visited him at his work, I did not have to get on a rocket ship, I just drove up a mountain to a telescope. But if you zoom out far enough, he's in space. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're all in space, right? Floating on this pale blue dot. So maybe I was right all along. But anyway, he's definitely by far my smartest uncle and it's very gratifying that he listens to me. So it was very nice that he continues to listen to us and he did add some commentary on the 2006 IAU meeting which is where Pluto was kicked out of planethood. So prior to that they knew they were going to vote on the definition of what a planet was and before then we were using something big enough to be round but not big enough to start a nuclear reaction because at that point it's the sun right? Which worked fine for years but they came up with a definition of planets in our solar system only without any contribution from our planetary scientists friends. To paraphrase a planet in our solar system needs to be orbiting the sun big enough to be round and big enough to clear the neighborhood of its orbit. No I don't know what this last one really means. There's a lot wrong with this. First, it discounts all those planets that we've been finding in other stars. Uh, so anytime you hear of exoplanets, not actually planets, according to the official definition as decided by the IAU. Second of all, we regularly get rather large things zipping by us here on Earth and rather large things hitting us. So we don't clear our path. So maybe we're not living on a planet.
1: That's an interesting take, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried to press him on this. I'm like, wait, is really Earth not a planet? And his, his opinion is that according to the official definition, both Pluto and Earth are not planets because of all the stuff in our path that we have not Cleared.
1: Is there anything that would meet that criteria of a planet?
0: I don't know. Like, they all have <laughs> moons, right? It seems like maybe the moon is in our path and we didn't clear it. So, as far as I know, every planet has at least one moon. I might be slightly off on that.
1: Uh, Mercury doesn't.
0: Right. So, Mercury is maybe and the Venus. planet of the solar system. Yeah,
1: Mercury and Venus don't. So, they thought you go. that maybe Mercury is Venus's moon. Is that Ooh. a possibility? I mean, it's pretty close to
0: Venus. It's the closest planet to Venus and every other planet. Uh, but <laughs> uh, there we go. All right. We've got two planets in the solar system and we don't live on either of them. <sighs> oh. So I found that very interesting feedback. I'm really pleased to have that feedback. That was a lot of fun learning more about that. That's cool. The next thing is on coffee bets. It just seemed through the power of this podcast to encourage everyone to bet coffees, which we don't actually bet coffees. One friend bet me that another friend would make me a coffee at the campsite because they were the only one who brewed coffee. (laughs) But it was enjoyable. I had a weekend away and we did several coffee bets. Not just with me, some people were making coffee bets with each other, but a couple of points which I feel like I could have raised at the time, but I'm not gonna raise on the podcast on the assumption that you all listen to it. I would say something that I thought. I said, I'll bet poker machines take credit cards at this point, and they would try to bet. Me a coffee that they wouldn't, and I would refuse, and they seemed like really disappointed by this. But I think it's important to note that the fact that someone is willing to bet against you should be knowledge that feeds into your worldview of like maybe I'm wrong here.
1: Yeah, that's fair. The fact that someone else is willing to take the other side and stump up some money that should tweak your probability balance.
0: Yeah. Do you read V. Mavsoich still? No. He was doing predictions, and he did a list of ten predictions on COVID of how long will the lockdowns last and how many people will be killed by it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he gave two sets of odds, which is like this is what the odds I think they are, and then he said, but it would be lunacy to put those odds out there and then let anyone pick off the two where they know you're the most wrong and bet against you at those odds so he gave a second set of odds which is like this is the odds that I would actually be willing to gamble at.
1: That's interesting I mean yeah from what I know v. he's got a big background in gambling right so that's.
0: Yes I think he was probably a professional poker player I think a lot of magic card players tend to be professional poker players once they work out how much more money professional <laughs> poker players make than <laughs> magic card players.
1: Yeah and if you've got like proper betting strategies doing Kelly bets and all that kind of thing there's there's some interesting stuff behind sports betting in general as well as yeah, professional gambling along the lines of poker, etc. But and, and those poker players can come and mop the floor with amateurs like you and me, as we have personally experienced.
0: As we've personally experienced when we invited a couple of friends uh, to play a casual poker night with us and they just took all their money off us. All of our money was all gone. <laughs> it was Ugh. so bad. So embarrassing.
1: But it kind of aligns to one of the points that Zvi made a few weeks ago, back when I was still reading him, about why his predictions on coronavirus and his guidance that he provides on coronavirus can be more accurate and more nuanced than that from the CDC and from the FDA, which is they make a whole bunch of stuff and he can look at it post hoc and just pick off the things that are wrong in there. Yes. So if you're like providing critiques to someone, it is much easier to find a gap and add value than it is to come from a blank slate and be like, this is my position.
0: Like a lot of people are saying, Zvi is smarter than the FDA. Why don't we just let him choose our coronavirus policy rather than all these bureaucrats who have got things so wrong? And he's like, yeah, it's actually much easier for me because I can look at the FDA and say, I agree with 99% of them, but he is the 1% where they're wrong. And so I actually have pretty good chances of being more correct than the FDA on average because I'm not starting from a blank slate.
1: Yeah, yeah that's an interesting point. So if you're looking at gambling markets, you probably should be factoring in probability theory and in particular Bayes theory <laughs> into your priors. Uh, so you start off with a base assumption of the probability of an outcome. And as new evidence comes in, you update those chances. And someone else being willing to wage a bet with you should should shift you around.
0: Yeah, particularly when they're so eager. Now I really don't want to take that bet. Like you've proven your point.
1: Yeah. Your prior probability on it might have been like 30% chance that Poke Machines didn't take credit cards. And them being so keen sort of indicates that they're like 95% sure that that's the case.
0: Yeah. So I might mean in the middle I'm like maybe they take debit cards. Like, yeah, good point. Probably credit cards and gambling is a bad mix, but maybe they take debit cards. But like they're so confident. I'm no longer willing to take that. Bet. We never did settle it, but I am actually I'm pretty sure I'm wrong.
1: And another thing to note there is just like whenever we talk coffee bets, there's a few times that people will have
0: noticed, I edit out a lot of back and forth there where we're talking about terms. So you know, there's a lot of negotiation. Even some of these bets. One of the bets we had was when was UTC time invented? Yep. Uh, and there was a bit of negotiating. The negotiating's hard and something like that because uh, I had a fair idea and he had a fair idea. They were 100 years apart. This is the fun of the bets, and I think it's because we were both operating in pretty good faith. Like my initial bet was like 10 years after he thought it was, and then he tried to push it all the way up to 10 years before I thought it was. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. It's going to be like 50 years in the middle. I want a little bit of wiggle room in case I'm a bit wrong.
1: Yep, good stuff. All right. I'm glad that one of the things that we're pushing out there is getting traction. So that's
0: nice. Absolutely. A lot of fun. Very enjoyable uh, way to pass a long car trip.
1: Well, while we're talking betting markets, I have looked more into prediction markets. I managed Mm. to sign up for Augur this week. It seems Mm -hmm. like the only markets that I can access without uh, a VPN is nothing because literally all the betting markets seem to be based in the US from what I can see. And from Australia, I can't actually see any open betting markets on Augur. So
0: Nothing. Fully illegal. Is it fully illegal? We're so good at gambling in this country.
1: They might need a license here or something. But honestly, I speculate that it's just the actual markets themselves are limited by geography. So they would have to be an Australian market for that prediction that I could see. That's just my speculation, but
0: it's just weird. That doesn't feel like the promise of cryptocurrency. What are you doing, cryptocurrency? When you a world without borders, no governments, you know, no laws, no masters. Why are you limiting me based on geography? Can't I just bit my bitcoins?
1: There was another link from Marginal Revolution this week on another prediction market. So I'll look into that one, but it's not looking good. So I think what we need is I do need to double down and actually email Vitalik Buterin and be like, can you help me set up an ETH chain for myself? Sure. (laughs) Just a coffee bed ETH chain.
0: How hard can it be? Like Dogecoin was made in one after Right, and it's well worth trillions of dollars. Yeah. Why don't we do that?
1: (sighs) So doge. Such money. Yeah, that's fantastic feedback. Thank you very much, listeners. Always keen to hear more and more. You bring as much to the podcast as we do sometimes. So, you know,
0: good stuff, good job, affixes. Yeah, and I mean it's just really gratifying to know that people are engaging with what we're talking about and enjoying it. So please, all the feedback. We're literally still yet to get an email, listeners. Like everyone just knows me in person and reaches out. At least some of our comments were on our dedicated Facebook page and not on my Facebook page, but on the business's Facebook page now that we are a profitable business earning dozens of dollars a year so that's something but an email would be lovely just so that we know that the email address works i guess it's apicspodcast at gmail.com
1: great so everyone once again hoping that we've managed to get a few recommendations from you last week but continuing to ask for more favors from you and see if you haven't got a chance to recommend us to a friend or you know you haven't quite picked the right friend yet just encouraging you
0: I just want to make a point. I want you to recommend this to your smartest friend because your stupid friends, they're not going to enjoy it. I want your smartest It's not a smarter than you, obviously, dear listener, the person one down from you.
1: I'm not going to rule it out that some people might have friends who are smarter than themselves. I mean, a lot of people take the advice that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. I personally have never taken that advice, but you know, no. sometimes I stumble into the, the right room and I'm like, oh God,
0: I'm so scared. Yeah, and I like it. here. Everyone's <laughs> so much smarter than me and it's very intimidating. <laughs>
1: Anyway, yeah, really hope that you can continue to follow through and recommend us to at least one friend of yours to add to the listenership and email that email that we've yet to get a single thing into our inbox on and give us ideas and feedback and tell us where we're being silly, that kind of stuff. But really encourage you on that and also would really love to go back to a coffee bet from early days and say, can you please add a review to us on whatever podcast app you're using? I don't care if it's Apple Podcasts or whatever. Those reviews are really nice to see. And a review adds a lot of value. and
0: Makes us look like a legitimate podcast. It's not just people shouting into the void. There's people out there who like us. And, you know, there are people out there who like us. It's really nice to know that a few people are listening to our podcast and really enjoying it. Reviews help the rest of the world know that, not just...
1: It's them. nice to see that Chris even acknowledges that it's not all about him. Even though he's looking out for number one, sometimes he could look out for everyone else too.
0: Sometimes. I don't promise to do
1: it all the time. <laughs> Cool. So, onto the feedback for myself, the editor's notes as I worked through last week's podcast. So, a few podcasts ago, I mentioned some commentary from Scott Sumner on interest rates and how reserve banks and central banks have kind of been forced to follow movements in the interest rate markets rather than just actually making interest rate policy themselves, which was something kind of new to me a bit. Um, I would always seen them as very mechanical operators in the market, I suppose, and yeah. seeing them actually be forced to make decisions was an interesting framework to work with.
0: I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? If there is actual money being actually lent out at these terms, it's not like the government can just make up a number. If the government was during the stagflation of the 70s saying, we're going to pay you 0.25% on the money that did this, no one's going to lend the government money. Like there's maybe a few people who just want anything better than cash that's safe, but there's not going to be that many of it. When you're earning 15% interest in a bank account that's also federally insured, or you're earning 0.25% interest on a bond, I just don't see how that situation (laughs) can work at all.
1: Yeah. So I agree with that I guess I'd just taken it a lot of my economic background was honestly financial markets and looking at the world since inflation rate targeting came in Mm -hmm. and all the movements around that has been fine tuning around getting the right interest rate to match or to curtail money demand or that kind of thing so managing the supply to curtail demand and having that kind of view to say no well they're being forced to act rather than they're choosing to act was an interesting frame I'll put a link in the show notes for this week he had a great article uh, reflecting on recent movements in the bond markets so it's called about those bond Vigilantes, where he details the really good analogy for this, which is nice. So I'll read this out for everyone. Imagine that a bus drives from Denver to Salt Lake City. What determines the path of the bus? Is the path determined by the way the driver adjusts the steering wheel or by the layout of the highway? In this analogy, the bus driver is the Fed Reserve and the road is the natural rate of interest under a 2% inflation target. So you can see it as if you go back to the 1970s or the 1960s, when stagflation came in, that was actually a natural Natural result of not following the highway, effectively, of the Federal Reserve being ignorant of what the natural rate of interest was and not actually changing their policy and their supply of money to meet that.
0: What was their policy? We were both born post-inflation rate targeting, right? First pioneered in New Zealand. It was
1: my understanding that it was mostly tied to unemployment rates and exchange rates, but that could be entirely wrong. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I studied this stuff.
0: I'm just wondering how they did it. Just rolled a dice? Just <laughs> asked their banker friends what would make them the most rich? I, like I have no understanding what interest rates are for. If not for inflation rate targets, it's so ingrained in my understanding of the economy, which is not that great. But it's a big part of my lack of understanding. I don't know what you do without that. What are you doing with interest yes, rates?
1: Good point. All right, that'll be a note for myself to research later. I think. Yeah. So I just thought it was really interesting, nicely laid it out for me to say, yep, sometimes you can steer right off the road. You're not just forced to do it. You can steer off the road and end up in a massive inflation spiral. Let's hope we don't end it up this time.
0: Well, just when you say let's hope it doesn't happen this time, there's a reasonable body of evidence that you get sort of bad inflation before you get hyperinflation. So it's not necessarily a bolt out of the blue. And hopefully economics has developed enough profession now that the US at least doesn't go over the cliff where they see all this inflation. They're like, you know what's going to fix this inflation? It's printing all the more money. What we need is the super cares act because the cares act wasn't big enough yeah hopefully
1: I, don't know. I mean even if we look back to 1970s like that wasn't hyperinflation that was just very high inflation that had to be brought under control so it also had a bunch of other bad effects but yeah cool the second one was kind of just a half thought and i'm keen to get your opinions on this on our ubi discussion i kind of mentioned like a year. It's not going to be enough for people to make the decision at the margin to choose not to work whatsoever. But I wonder what the marginal impacts would be for people choosing between careers or whether people would be disincentivized from pursuing that next promotion or that kind of thing. I don't know if if you've got any thoughts on that. I was just, it was a question that occurred to me.
0: I mean, I have a lot of thoughts of this just from observing my friends that the Western world is now so incredibly rich that there's already disincentive effects for that next promotion, that being someone in a position like yours is incredibly stressful and you definitely own 70% more than me, but I earn a lot of money and (laughs) my job's not that stressful. So I'm sort of on the career track just because, you know, you have had fun at times and I would like to see what that's like. But I've definitely got many friends who are like, I could take that job and it would pay more than that other job. But man, it seems like an enormous amount of work for 10% additional money. So I could definitely see that happen. Like 100%, I could see fewer people choosing to take. There's these sort of low-ish paid jobs that are quite backbreaking where you have to deal with customers all day and particularly where you have to deal with angry customers all day. I think that they would have to attract an additional premium. So it's once you've got the UBI plus a really clock in, turn brain off kind of job, that would be sufficient for a lot of people rather than I can earn an extra 10 grand a year by being stressed out of my mind and getting screamed at all day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Your point on like pursuing promotions and getting into management, that kind of thing is an interesting one to me as well, right? If you reduce the incentive to go into management, are you just going to end up with people who just want power or are you also going to be filtering for people who also just want to be good leaders? I don't know. Maybe you're just, you're doing a good thing by filtering out the people who are money hungry. It's just very
0: (laughs) vague. Yeah, it would be fair to say that I select my friends to be like me, think that people have noticed that my friendship group has certain characteristics. it'd be fair to say I have a type, so I don't know whether this is universal, but a surprising number of my friends are not interested in promotion. Like, I am fine. I am a very technically capable person and I can get my job done very nicely. And it's interesting and engaging. I don't need any more. So I would say that we have always selected for power when it comes to giving out power because powerful people want power. That is your thing. That is why you're my power friend. And uh, where was it? It was in the tricameral Congress, which is a thing we put in the show notes about how you could select a third party of congress and a lot of the ideas seem to be like oh we want to give power to those people who don't really want power i'm not actually sure how i feel about this idea i think that it goes you know possibly back to the sword in the stone that all the power hungry knights who really wanted to be king couldn't rip the stone out and then this boy accidentally pulls it out but he's pure of spirit and will be a great leader i'm actually i'm not 100 percent convinced by that i think you actually have to want the power in order to wield power i think that if you gave i don't know me a huge amount of power i'd be like i don't really know what to do with it Can we just keep doing things as they are they seem to be going fine Whereas someone who really wants to build the next Facebook or whatever will put all of those resources to the absolute max to therefore increase their power even more. And it's like, it's maybe not the most noble reason to grow a company, but it's probably more effective.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I guess what you draw out there is different facets of power that people might not appreciate that could be attractive for people. So a lot of people, myself included, when I was early in my career, just assumed that people pursued management for that feeling of raw power. And out of a kind of sadistic view of I can boss people around.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not saying that that's my view, just a yeah. be clear, but please go on.
1: Agree. Also, as a person who's come into power, who was very sceptical of that, there's a part of it that's just like, there's power that wants self-determination and, you know, to be able to choose my own path, not necessarily boss other people around, but just not be bossed around as much myself. Hint for everyone, that doesn't necessarily happen as you go up the chain. <laughs>
0: It's just all the more powerful people bossing you around. Yeah. They've got way more practice doing it than uh, most of your schlub level bosses.
1: Yeah. So there's that kind of level of power for just independence, I suppose. And then in a similar vein, there's the power to pursue your own desires and people who are particularly driven to get a certain outcome. They're the kind of people, as long as the outcome is beneficial to society, who you want to give that power, who can continue to push society ahead, I suppose, rather than, yeah, just promoting people who want money and want to just be fl- along and saying, yeah, what we did before worked, so let's not stuff anything up and we can just keep moving.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we've made this point before that capitalism has its failings and, you know, there's going be reforms that could be had. But I think one of the great benefits of capitalism is those ridiculously power hungry people are no longer warlords conquering the Congress. They are Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, these incredibly driven people who really, really want to get a specific goal and probably amass a lot of power is an important thing to them. Certainly, Zuckerberg is famed for being hyper competitive and really wants to win everything That he's in, and yeah, go back to feudal times, and they just declare some crusades so they could get some additional land. And now we get, you know, two day delivery and a way to see all their friends, and no news.
1: I don't think I've got too much more to add to that, but that was a nice little diversion. It was just a thing that occurred to me reflecting on UBI. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember how we got into this conversation. <laughs> I guess what we're getting at there from that like little tangent thought I had listening back to our conversation was by bringing in UBI, you may better select for people who want to progress and add value through leadership rather than just take it for the money, just go up the chain for the sake of a promotion. <laughs> The other big general thought I had reflecting on our conversation on moral foundations theory and Jonathan Haidt and Julia Galef's conversation never quite got to the point around Julia's justification for why she's able to rationally work her way towards always prioritizing our care and fairness, which was based on John Rawls's uh, philosophical concept of the veil of ignorance.
0: Yes. Place Rawls for me. Where's he been in the canon?
1: He's like actually surprisingly recent. I think it's like nineteen. 70s or 80s 70s
0: wow that's surprisingly
1: I, I can't believe like I've heard about this concept many years ago and just assumed it was one of those like 1700s 1800s
0: concepts I actually could have assumed that it was Plato
1: yeah so incredibly recent the veil of ignorance is essentially just imagine that you are not yourself you're just in a black box you're a disembodied soul pick between outcomes or the way the world works and if you assume that people behave in that way in one area so in one world consensual cannibalism is a thing and people are tolerant of it or whatever even if people consent and in another world consensual cannibalism is still completely immoral and everyone sees it and acts with disgust and even if you want to do it you're still going to be judged as a bad person which of those worlds would you want to live in and as a disembodied soul if you would choose the consensual cannibalism is okay world then that's your moral foundation for why that's okay right
0: like- i think you missed the important bit is that you are a disembodied soul in that you don't know whether you're the person who has predilections towards being killed and eaten or you, or whether you're the person who would be disgusted by that so this is what kind of a world i think maybe a, a less charged example of <laughs> perhaps uh, just a noble system so should there be nobles and peasants uh and you should pick whether this is a good type of world before you know whether you're going to be born a noble or a peasant all the nobles just discuss between themselves do we like this idea of there being nobles and peasants they were like yeah no i mean there's just people with good blood right so i think that that's really important that they contained all the power because if we get those peasants any power they just probably ruin it so yeah we're all agreed nobles keep the power nobles keep the power cool the idea of the Rawlsian veil of ignorance is that you should make that decision not knowing whether you are going to be born as a noble or as a peasant.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's something that's commonly applied to why you should have altruism going to third world countries, for example. So from the first world, why do I care about them? Everyone I know lives here and I want their lives to be better. I don't know those people over there. Why should I help them? Well, if you take the Rawlsian view in a veil of ignorance, you got a one in six billion chance or whatever it is. How many people are in the first world now who who would be in the developed world? I don't know. You got a, let's say one in three chance of being in a society relatively similar to what we currently live in in Australia.
0: Even that honestly feels generous to me. One in three. He feels high. I feel like we're luckier than
1: that. Yeah, maybe it's one in six, but let's say, yeah, one in six. So you've got a five in six chance of living in a hellhole, effectively. So therefore, you're probably taking that veil of ignorance view, should be dedicating some of your resource to make the world less of a hellhole.
0: That sounds like a reasonable use of resource.
1: So yeah. I guess where I wanted to take this was, how can I come up with a justification for those other moral foundations, for things like honor, for things like preference of family, so on and so forth. And what I boiled down to over the last week. And I'll warn everyone, this is bad philosophy because all philosophy until you actually write it down is awful, okay? (laughs) Okay. So like you can hold a lot of beliefs and personal philosophies and understandings of how the world works in your head and it's only when you actually try to communicate them, like write them down or tell someone about them that you actually realize how bad they are. Until that point, they seem really good to you. Uh, It's only when you say them out loud that you realize they don't make any sense whatsoever. (laughs) But this is what I came up with in my head. The justification could be a very the Stoic worldview Being One of the principles Of stoicism is You want to go along With nature So the way of the world Or fate Essentially Is a carriage And you are just a dog Leashed to that carriage And you can try and fight Against the way The carriage is going You can fight against fate You can fight against The way the world's working But you're going that way And if you fight against it And you can move sort of In
0: the other direction right And you can get a little bit ahead And a little bit behind
1: Yep But if you're really Fighting against it Or if you're ignorant of it Or if you're just getting angry At the way the world's working You're going to get hurt Even more because you're getting literally dragged along by the way of the world. Yep. So the functional nature of stoicism is to say, just accept it and go along with it. Try and align the way you work with the way the universe works. And if I boil down, well, oh, this is a big call, but if I take a few principles... From the likes of Richard Dawkins and the functionality of how genetics work, I suppose. Yep. You could see life as a information system. So, a little bundle of negative entropy that can organize itself, exuding a lot of energy as entropy, of course. Mm-hmm. That is doing its best to perpetuate itself throughout time.
0: Yep, we're all just replication machines. So
1: we are bundles of information through genetics. So our genetic material is information systems, as well as memetics. So the classic version of memes, where the word memes originally came from, I think was Richard Dawkins and saying that our culture, our society, what we write down and what we share with our families, et cetera, that's memes. That's memetics in contrast to genetics. Even if you don't have children, you can extend your legacy by engaging with others in your society and creating a memetic legacy. So if I take those principles and say, okay, in nature, life itself is a self-perpetuating replication machine for our information streams. If I want to go along with that, I want to be perpetuating the information stream most like myself. Yep. Yep. So therefore I want to be honor bound to my family. I want to make sure that their interests are best served over and above those in the third world or over and above those who live in a culture that is, you know, the out group to mine. I can see some arguments for that, but I can also see some terrible arguments for that. I I think that's where you can get to racist approaches. That's where you can get to nationalistic approaches, etc. But if you step back far enough and say, okay, I appreciate humanity itself because I think the greatest value of our memetic system is... Consciousness itself,
0: yep. All of humanity,
1: yep. That gives me a big priority to help out
0: everyone. So I guess I don't know. It's a point in morals and everything is that we are born with genes and predilections and these sorts of things that are of our animal origins for just for reproducing our genes. And it's whether you think that that can or should feed into your actual moral framework. And I would say it does not follow into Julia's. And possibly from a Stoic point of view, you could say, well, you can say it doesn't fall into yours. But inevitably, the people that it does follow into, they're the ones who are going to outcompete you and outbreed you and that is going to be the morals of the future regardless of whether you think they're good or not.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's a thing I will continue to work through throughout the years but I felt after a week's thought that i got a podcast
0: why not put it out there? Sure. (laughs) It's some heavy stuff. Maybe you'll be the next philosopher. Maybe they'll be like Brian Kemp? He was in in the 20s? His ideas feel like they could have been from Plato.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. As anyone will clearly notice from this I am just some guy who is an autodidact on learning philosophy and that is the worst way to learn philosophy.
0: (laughs) Apparently, yeah. At least you talked to me about it.
1: Yeah, that's nice. So I guess what I boil that down to is Julia can see The world in a kind of Rationalistic way But removing yourself From the functionality Of the universe So really prioritizing Qualia itself So experience She would I assume Not go along with this assertion But almost a view of the soul As being positive Like experience itself Is your soul And maximizing the benefits Of any given soul Is positive In the Rawlsian Veil of ignorance view But if you prioritize Functionality And you just take the world As it is As it stands Then that could tip you Towards those more Conservative behaviors behaviors and valuing other moral foundations more than just care and fairness
0: yeah frustrated desires is one thing that's brought up i think every now and then as possibly the goal of a moral system is minimizing the amount of frustrated desires that exist i mean that could get used to some fairly repugnant places as well as can all simplistic versions of morality but if someone has the desire to eat someone and someone has the desire to be eaten then we should not frustrate those desires maybe i don't know it's all a tough one
1: let's just create a simulation for them so they can just experience it without actually creating any harm oh but then with the things in the simulation feel harm where do we get
0: to Uh, where do we stop maybe we are the simulations anyone ever posited that idea before no surely not that's pretty original (laughs) god Chris you could be the next guy I could be the next guy oh no we might put that in the show notes The simulation (laughs) argument (sighs) so there you go wow that was a that was a big one that was heavy particularly if we haven't eventually started the podcast yet (laughs)
1: Chris, you were going to talk about Substack because that's a thing we've mentioned a few
0: times. Substack, yes. So I mentioned that I don't have time for TV or the news or books or anything because all I do is read Substack. And apparently it's not as famous outside the tiny little weird corner of the internet that I live in as I maybe I thought it was. And it's probably not about to replace the nine news as the dominant form of media for our age. Oh, come on, surely. Maybe, it's got a lot of VC money. So, you know, it might only be five years before at least, but we'll see. TV news doesn't really have that much editorial on it. I'm just
1: saying. I don't know. I don't watch it. <laughs> uh, I think like back in the day, so disclosure, I used to be a bit of a news guy, as much as I've like said a few snide comments about the news in our previous podcasts. I used to be like really into politics, really into news and getting onto the low information diet was really beneficial for me. But back in the day, the morning news shows I remember used to have like a two minute editorial section. So the Today Show had Alan Jones, I think, do a little rant every morning and similar thing with Sunrise had some other guy do the same thing. So it was like, out of an hour of honestly mostly awful content they'd have maybe two minutes of editorial and the rest was either clearly just entertainment and having a flippin lottery or covering sports news and other news and general interest topics so I can see a big place for editorial in newspapers but shifting it out online just uh, I don't know it's just a thought that occurred to me then sorry I've completely derailed the topic
0: no no I mean this is mostly the discussion I want to have and I've got some facts in here but I don't have enough for a full segment so please I need you to talk back to me. otherwise this podcast is <laughs> gonna be real short and all the listeners will be like I'm not going to recommend these guys to my friend because they're idiots so we brought up the point last time that there's sort of two forms of news which is literally just facts on the ground you know a bus caught fire and people were injured or died or this political party won or this sports team kicked the most goals and therefore are the champion my friend and then there's news as editorial and that is a different beast and it does seem like the New York Times is leaning very heavily into news as editorial and it actually seems where the money is honestly in the age net in that facts are so cheap and easy to replicate that it's very hard to make a money by sending reporters into the boring council meeting or into wherever because those facts all get replicated and it's very hard to claim a fact. In fact, it's illegal to claim a fact. There's been various hot news doctrines at times, but I don't think any of them are still on the book today. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they're not possible.
1: And also at the same
0: time, like editorials and opinion is just more (laughs) engaging to read as well. Yeah, much. That's probably why I read so much of it and don't read many facts because none of the facts seem to impact my life in the long term. But the editorials at least make me think for a few hours and give me topics to talk about on a podcast, which is important to me. But yeah, in the business model of news, Particularly if that's the business model of TV news, and I'll just have to take your word for it because I don't remember the last time I watched the TV news. I'm I'm going to attribute it to Mark Twain, just such a quotable guy. It may not have been him, but, you know, he gets all the good quotes, which is like, the people who don't read the news are uninformed, and that would be me. The people who do read the news are misinformed. It's a great quote. Because, you know, this is so famous as to have A law named after it, I do love a good law And this is Noll's Law of Media Accuracy Which is basically goes, everything you read in newspapers is Absolutely true, except for the rare story of which You happen to have first-hand knowledge. When I worked In the pet food industry, I remember reading an article About pet food, and I'm like, this is ridiculous, this journalist Has no idea about pet But then you read another Article about some other thing of which you have no technical Knowledge, and you're like, yeah, that's probably a reasonable summation Of facts. It's just impossibly difficult For a reporter to go into a, a Business for half an hour and get an accurate representation Of what's going in there, or go into a, the the aisles of power in Congress or go into a sports team or whatever, they just can't get that level of knowledge that quickly. So most reporting is probably wrong.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to circle back to about five minutes ago. I just realized that editorial has kind of gone into TV news now, but it's sneaky editorial. Oh no. It's panel shows. I think panel shows are editorial. Yeah, that sounds right. It's just people
0: flinging opinions around. Do we have a lot of them in Australia? They seem quite famous in America. I can even name a few probably, but we've got like comedy panel shows, but at the same time,
1: what can I think of as a Panel show. I guess most of those morning breakfast shows kind of have a bit of panel time. We've got the 7pm project.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I mean another thing of TV news is I remember a stat that like a huge percentage of people got their news from The Daily Show which is a comedy show, right? This is where they found out about comedy events and I was that person. Like that was all my news for a while in my early 20s, I want to say, back when Jon Stewart was doing it. That's it's a literal, you know, partisan biased comedy show that is obviously only going to pick the worst gaffes of the other political team and not show you anything where your own political team gets it wrong. And it's funny and you learn a bit about the world but I do think you get an incredibly skewed view of the world if that's your only news source yeah
1: I mean this is why as much as people can be annoyed at the ABC partisanship protocols and codes of practice that they have in place here for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation I, I still do enjoy a bit of that like being able to watch Sean McAuliffe's mad as hell and <laughs> see him skewer both sides is very nice even though you can see he's really reaching to skewer the left side it's still
0: great funny very funny it's a, it's a good form of entertainment basically yeah. but I'm not sure that it should be or is a Substitute for actual
1: news Yeah I guess it it gets to the point Around it makes it transparent for The argument that news is 99% actually there just to entertain you There's very little in there that is actually Going to impact the way you Live your life day to day other than give you Topics to talk to the people around you about
0: Which is a nice benefit I like talking to people About things but I never talk to them about the news Because I don't know anything and the one I like that people sometimes Use to illustrate this is you know pick a random month And you know perhaps last year was a very newsworthy Year where a lot that actually did affect your life day to day happened but in a general year yeah
1: if we go back to like 2006 what was the biggest news story of 2006 I don't know maybe something about the Iraq war how did the Iraq war impact me probably not very much how did it impact most Americans a lot of them might have had family that were enlisted in the army and impacted but even then what's the percentage of the US population that's enlisted in the
0: army a lot more than Australia but is it that big a deal a lot more than Australia but it's not that big a deal and um yep I'm reading the top news stories of 2006 on SPS, and you did nail it with Iraq so that's well done but then there was Howard and Beasley Sure Crocky and Brocky Oh right
1: Because Howard John Howard was still pre- Oh my god He was still Prime Minister in 2006 He was like leaving Setting up for Costello Yeah
0: Wow Right 2006 was also when uh, Peter Brock and Steve Owen died Oh yep There was terrorism There was Oh uh, it was the Wheatboard Scandal <laughs>
1: I'm getting so much nostalgia right
0: now. Like rings a bell, but I could tell you no details of, but I I don't know. I don't know whether I'm making my point or the opposite point, but like none of these news stories, 14 years later, 15 years later, matter at all. And these are the biggest of the entire year. So the idea that I need to keep up with the week's events feels like truly absurd. Yeah, I think everything I just said then
1: was like, oh, wow. Oh yeah, that's interesting. I'm getting nostalgia. Those are all entertainment benefits. Those are not me actually actioning anything benefits.
0: No, you're not acting differently in the world as a result of what you know about the world. Yeah. I think the news is just a lot less useful and a lot more entertaining than most people like to. It's a sort of a virtuous feeling form of entertainment where you're like, ah, well, I've got to dedicate my half an hour to the news every morning so that I can inform citizen. I do not agree with that. I don't think being informed is a superior state to being an uninformed. It doesn't seem to have impacted me.
1: I guess where it could add value to your life is at that more abstract level, right? Where it's a signaling boost to you. So you can like preen in front of others and go up in social status as a result of knowing the news because it's seen as that kind of luxury good. Whereas if you are just focused on, you know, whatever this week's harvest is at your farm. Gee, what a unsophisticated brute you are.
0: Right, okay. And I was going to say, I have my own methods of preening, thank you very much, and I shall not let the news <laughs> be one of them. Fair enough.
1: you got to pick the signals for your subculture.
0: That's right, it's important. And like not reading the news may <laughs> honestly be one of those signals.
1: It's often an example of like those hipsters who are like, I don't have a TV, I
0: haven't had for 10 years. Sure, I feel like I was that hipster for a year or two. Yep. Or like me being like, I've been off Facebook since 2014. Yeah, yeah. How do you know when someone's not on Facebook? They tell you with their Facebook status everywhere, <laughs> Have I also told you how I've got into CrossFit and I'm a vegan? <laughs> Which doesn't bring up the point like do we need to save the news? This is not at all where I thought this conversation would go but it feels like we're inevitably never be bleeding here. If this is just all for entertainment purposes and signalling and all of that nonsense. Who cares if the news goes away? Who cares if they all go bankrupt and Google and Facebook eat all their things? Like we made the discussion particularly in the early days of the Google Australian government brouhaha that the media is how we hold the powerful accountable but is it? Is it really?
1: It's a good point. I guess where I'd say I land I think you actually convince me that having a basis for getting facts out there is important. And that's why I think the whole predictions market silly idea that I had last week is not a silly idea. It's actually a brilliant idea. Yeah. But at the same time, I think the way that we are going in the world I've got no problem with people finding entertainment value in the news and using it as a signal boost or whatever, but the specialization that naturally comes from capitalism and being able to monetize something by making it the best it possibly can is leading to a carve out of opinion, of news. And that's why we've got platforms like Substack. That's why we have the 7pm project rather than just news hours, right? Because they've found a specific platform where people who only want to engage with the most engaging way of presenting this stuff being opinion and people joking around and being silly is becoming monetized to the detriment of purely people finding the facts. Like, I'm guessing that most journalists who are going out there doing fact-based reporting, they're kind of the lowest
0: paid. They're doing the necessary work, but not the most value-adding work. Absolutely. The person who has to go to every tin pot council meeting and take notes on the minute, uh, yeah, that doesn't feel like a high-paid, high-prestige job at all.
1: So, when we talk about the news, are we worried about the wrong part, which is the visible part, to the detriment of the invisible part and what we need to be figuring out is a way to continue funding and continue supporting information discovery
0: yeah so i have a couple of points i want to make first i've sung capitalism's praises so i do feel like this is where capitalism falls down and then it can be said that capitalism is extremely good at creating value and i do agree with that that it is largely a positive sun game but what it's really good is creating value where it is possible to monetize that value that could be created that is diffuse and hard to monetize capitalism does a really terrible job of incentivizing that because there's no money there and that's what capitalism runs on so possibly these fact-finding missions are a form of that value that could be really valuable to society and is really important to fund but capitalism is just really struggling with a way to do it and we used to do it with newspapers and ads and now that that's going away we're really not sure what's next and when you first told me the prediction market thing i do think that's genius and i do think there's a place for that but i don't actually still think that like no one's having a bet on will this council be corrupt sort of thing to to go and establish that in the first place like it has to be a topic that people are interested in betting on before you can start to create so let me take a step back you propose your prediction market thing rather than me stealing thunder
1: no that's all right so the idea exactly exactly as we threw out last week was by having prediction markets, what you can have is news organizations funded by information release. So what they could do is they do the research, they buy a bunch of puts or calls or whatever you want to put on the prediction market. So they buy a bunch of Trump tokens or whatever, because they think Trump's going to win because they've suddenly discovered that Biden's actually a crocodile (laughs) and they know that they're going to release that out to the general public on the following day. So when that news goes public, Trump's chances of winning go up And therefore, they can then sell their options and they made a huge profit and that's how they fund their business.
0: Yeah, and that feels like a plausible method of information discovery. I think that that is a really useful thing to have. Like it's a lot of the blogs and people that we follow are talking about at the moment. And I think that that's an excellent use. But yeah, I'm just not sure, like you'd have to set up corruption markets. Yeah. So this is Mr. Dooley, who I have never heard of, but the quote is, uh, the job of a newspaper is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So the idea is definitely that journalists should be, to a certain extent, muckrakers. records. They should be finding out the things that people don't want found out that it should be exposing corruption it should be exposing evil if you want to call it that and that that is a very important civic duty and i I do agree that unaccountable power can and i don't even think it requires ill will it just requires everyone saying well we sort of made a mistake there but if we don't tell anyone then you know it'll just upset everyone if they realize that we're bathing in the blood of literal children so let's all right we all made a whoopsie but let's no one talk about it if you have all the power and you can control all the state apparatus of propaganda you could probably get away with it and a free media could be like no we probably shouldn't kill children and in their blood and these people did it and so we should not vote for them next or possibly even more extreme consequences than that but definitely don't vote.
1: I buy your argument there, I guess it's just the trouble is that local news is in trouble no matter what like local news has been in trouble for the last 20 years. Local newspapers like small town newspapers at the very least have all been completely gutted. It's all centralised, it's the New York Times now or you might get like one state based newspaper that honestly shares most of its news with the other state based newspapers. Yeah. Um, So the kind of corruption in the local council is still pretty hard to uncover I mean, in my local council, something eventually came out that got escalated through to the federal government and people got held accountable for scamming a bunch of people on
0: rates. Yep. How did that get found out? Was that newspaper reporting? That might have been whistleblowers, actually. Right.
1: Maybe we just need whistleblowers. So those kind of pieces of information discovery are important, but also still not just properly funded by the way that currently the local news works versus how it worked 50 years ago when the local paper was a big deal versus the Herald Sun or the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, Similarly, like, I hear a lot of off- fan comments from friends who work in the surveying industry or the building industry in other districts who talk about the corruption on local councils at that level and it just doesn't really get that much traction other than yeah, through hearsay and people being attracted to running for council because they might be able to do a bit of graft.
0: Yeah, right. Oh, that's grim. I mean, do we actually think things were better 50 years ago when the newspapers were supreme? And here's my other question, like, is the newspaper just a different form of unaccountable power? Who's tattling on the newspaper?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Like, the level of unaccountable power has been a big theme in reading all the discussions of scott alexander and slate star codex lately and yeah people being muckrakers can still cause a lot of damage so you need some kind of accountability there i suppose
0: yeah i mean i guess maybe in a competitive market there would be more than- so maybe that's how you hold newspapers as they dob in each other a little bit read one newspaper or the other but the news eventually gets out there at least yeah
1: makes me want to go back and read ben thompson's thoughts on how to fund local news again because he was all about subscriptions i believe of course being ben Thompson and doing a substack thing before substack existed.
0: Yeah, I liked his idea in that you could get a trusted journalist and, you know, that would be worth paying for because they tell you what's going on around town. And the idea that I loved of his is that a couple of times a week or a couple of times a month or whatever, you just get an email saying nothing happened. It's like, I don't need to make up a story. I'm here to inform you. What I'm informing you of is that there's nothing you have to worry about. If I didn't find it today. We're all good. And so that would fly in the face of the entertainment argument of news, but it would be very newsy, right? Sometimes news doesn't happen and you don't have to just make up something to fill the 24-hour cable news site you could just say, no, nope, nothing today. I'm going to keep working on my long form stuff. That is nice. Yeah, I remember that bit. That was very
1: enlightening. And honestly, if I got a newsletter telling me that,
0: hey, everything's fine, that, that'd be nice to hear occasionally. That would be comforting, particularly when you've just gone through the rubbish bin scandal. It would be nice to hear that uh, there are no scandals this year. <laughs> uh, there we go. Right. That brings us back to Substack once you get us to, to Ben Thompson, which is a new method for paying journalists directly. Although, uh, you know, I'm starting to come around to the idea that they're not journalists. They're opinion columnists. Uh, and Substack is as ridiculous as this sounds. Email as a service So you could sign up As an author And this place that's called Substack Will send emails To a bunch of people And sometimes people Have to pay for those emails <laughs> Yes Like they're very directly Installed by Ben Thompson Because Ben Thompson Makes somewhere in the order Of a million dollars a year Out of his subscription newsletter So he charges Ten dollars a month Or a hundred dollars a year For his full edition Where you get three a week Or he gives one free email a week If you just want to do the free one Which I do Because I have too much else to read And I can't read Ben Thompson All the time Same here And that does give you A very direct relationship With the author I'm not paying to read the New York Times, and then I barely even notice the bylines and news articles that I read. But when I get an opinion from Noah or when I get uh, Scott Alexander, I know exactly who I'm reading on, and I sort of have an idea of their biases and their worldviews and their one big unifying idea that brings the whole world together or whatever. And I know who I'm reading. And so having a direct relationship with that author is a pretty cool thing. So you can fund their journalism, and you get more of it. Uh, but the model definitely seems to be that you get at least one free email a week, which is what I subscribe to, like a million of.
1: Yeah, it's great. I like I love Substack as a platform, as an entertainment platform. I can get there's definitely an element of information discovery there which is part of the content I suppose but it's not the raw information and I agree like having a direct way of funding the authors that you engage with is very appealing as a person who wants to engage with that even if I'm doing the the cheapskate thing and not paying anyone I can see the market idea there being I don't want to buy just the bundle package where once a week I get to read Scott Alexander and I also have to read a bunch of flunkies who can barely hold a candle to him I just want to directly fund that and only get that and be able to come in with the right mindset when it comes into my email inbox.
0: Yep. Yeah I think the mindset things are a big part of the appeal is like I know who I'm reading and I can sort of set my brain appropriately yeah. <laughs> just as an aside this is something that often gets me because Marginal Revolution is one of the blogs we read a lot is predominantly written by Tyler Cohen and I can often get like a paragraph deep before I'm like I'm not reading Tyler here I'm reading Alex Tabarrok because I would say he's one in four, one in five of the posts roughly and I do figure it out every time but I just assume that I'm reading Tyler every time I open up Marginal Revolution and I read through and I'm like wait a minute this isn't Tyler at all. He's not being Straussian enough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is not nearly obtuse enough. This is way too
0: technical. Yeah, it actually has useful suggestions for what we should do, (laughs) rather than just snark. Yeah.
1: yeah. I guess it's just a a monetized blogging system, I suppose, but it works. It really works.
0: It does work, and so why I wanted to mention it, and why I think it's big, although I don't really know how big it is, is it, it only started in 2018. It was explicitly modeled off Stratechery, which is Ben Thompson's email, and it just got a bunch of VC and hired a bunch of popular things. And I think the other appeal of it is that there is no editor, so a lot of journalists it would seem, who have moved to Substack, have felt under the thumb of the organizations that they work for, and that they could not pitch certain stories that they really wanted to write about, or they had to pitch them in certain ways so as to go along with the predefined narrative of whatever organization they did. So they've pushed a lot of high-profile people. Matt Iglesias is the one that I can think of most, and he founded Vox. Like, he founded his own news organization, and then he found the news organization that he founded and owned, so oppressive, and he couldn't write about what he wanted to write, that he left to go and join Substack, which is crazy to me.
1: Yeah, that's me. madness, that- That is madness. So to to really pull it apart for people, because I don't
0: even have the answer to this myself.
1: Other than the direct email thing and directly funding the authors you like, what differentiates Substack from Medium?
0: Yeah, I know. Because Medium feels like such a junkyard these days. I listened to a podcast with the founder of Medium and it sounds like he's talking about what Substack actually is and Medium just turned into a wasteland. The whole idea of Medium was that we're not going to do ads. You're going to pay for a lot of this content so that the authors just want to do. And we're going for really deep engagement. So it's more about how long you read an article for rather than just getting the click so that you can see the ads. And that was like very idealistic. But Medium seems like almost more clickbaity than the normal news to me sometimes. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about medium like personally I've put a
1: couple of things up on there when I was studying data science that was actually part of our projects was to put up an article there explaining yes. how we did things <laughs> maybe it's too accessible
0: yeah I was going to bring up that exact point like particularly we could not pass that course without putting up several posts on medium right that was part of our coursework and that that's presumably something that medium has leaned into and so when you make it too accessible you get schlubs like us just writing things that we don't necessarily care about although I feel like I put a good amount of effort to enjoy writing that post but I'll bet there's plenty who are just like I just want the course because then I can put it on my CV and get my next job or whatever. I'll just put any old slop up and it really erodes the discovery process because there's just so much garbage on there. There's some good Medium posts. I've definitely read good Medium posts, but it, as a rule, I've never found discovering things on Medium very good at all. At all. The stuff it recommends it to is garbage.
1: Yeah, same. Like when I've seen links to Medium posts through Reddit conversations or through comments in Slate Star Codex or if I've just generally been Googling a topic on data science, the data science section on Medium is actually generally pretty good. Like there's some high quality posts on there. They step it through. But at the same time, if you just go to medium.com and on the discovery page, or if I get the weekly email from them, which I then unsubscribed from.
0: Yeah, I finally had to do that. So
1: much of it is just awful. It's just like really
0: average. And so substacks say that they help with the discovery process, but I don't even know what substack does to help authors be discovered.
1: They just get the authors who talk about each other.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what I want to say. Like I started reading one substack. It seems the only way I find new substacks is with authors bickering with each other, which is fun. This is definitely one of my guiltiest pleasures. And I talked to Brian about it and Brian like, no, I am a serious man and I'm not interested in this Chris, but I love it when like different <laughs> authors who are really smart and really eloquent just take pot shots at each other and it's, it's a very interesting way to see two sides of an argument as well because they're both so strong and so well reasoned and so eloquent I love that, I love that, and so I've, I've subscribed to many sub stacks on the basis of like, ah, oh, this guy called me out, but let me tell you how wrong he was, I'll show him here's all the reasons why I'm right, and I'm like, oh, I wonder why he thought you were wrong, and then I read them and like ah, oh, remember this guy, he's awful and he's wrong about everything and this is why I'm right about everything, I was fantastic it's it's very enjoyable to do i love it
1: i'm glad that you're really calling out the value here entertainment wise rather than you know philosophically the dialectical value or whatever you're just like now this is great i love seeing people through Yeah, there might be a
0: tiny bit of that but mostly mostly it's the intent value form they're just a lot of fun
1: yeah so that's a rundown on substack there's a bunch of cultural phenomena going on The power of opinion as a subset of the news has become more and more important, and as part of that, part of building niches and the nature of the internet, Substack has created a market for that, building off the top of things like Patreon, which you can fund us through, or Twitch, which you can subscribe to individual streamers, etc. Substack have applied that same kind of market theory to
0: editorial opinion writing, and it seems to be going pretty well. Maybe you've just hit on the difference between Medium and Substack, in that Medium has never really, to my mind, tried to cultivate that relationship between the author and the reader, right? And a Patreon, you're supporting us directly because you really like what we're doing. Medium tried to be the general source of good news and we'll source the good news for you and we'll put it in front of you. And because you never have a relationship and it's still just a bunch of anonymous people that you read once and never read again, you don't get that relationship so it's not as engaging as I really like what Scott Alexander writes so I'm going to pay for it because I just I like Scott Alexander specifically. Yeah,
1: and I think the power of those relationships is more important in editorial
0: yeah much like the facts are the facts right you can put a spin on the facts for sure but anyone can report the facts really and i don't really care if a different person reports it each week if i just want some raw fact about what happened but it's the editorial where you can start to develop a relationship with the person then that is more valuable and you are more willing to pay for that yep more engaging higher value more willing to just fund them stip up the money because
1: memetically you're more close to them
0: yeah 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 you sort of think that they're your friend sometimes i think i'm your friend just on the basis of this podcast (laughs) oh that's nice (laughs) Anyway, it's one way, I'm sure. Cool. That
1: was a huge topic. That was a good discussion. So, everyone, you know, if you're interested in our discussions, there's smarter people who are better communicators than us on Substack. Go
0: check it out. Go check them out. Remember, we're an affix. We just add a little bit to what we've already read. We have no original ideas of our own.
1: Yeah, we're like symbiotic parasites.
0: <laughs> It's coffee bet time. Woo. So, so at some point, we said that one of the perks of being a Patreon for us is that you can suggest coffee bets that we have. So we've got one of those today. And so if you are a patron, please, I definitely encourage you to send us in a coffee bet that you'd like us to bet. Give us some wiggle room if you specify it too much and we can only take one side or the other and it's hard for us to have a discussion. But uh, if you give us an interesting topic, we would love to have a coffee bet on it. So the one I want to talk about today, speaking of the news, is what percentage of Australians will be vaccinated by the end of this year against COVID specifically, not just MMR or whatever.
1: Ooh, what percentage? Okay. What would I be thinking at the end of this year? Because... I vaguely remember seeing something on the coronavirus down under subreddit when I just check it daily for the daily case updates. One of the topics on there was Scott Morrison predicts V-Day in August or October, something like that. Yep. And I think V-Day is when you get to like the level of
0: vaccinations for herd immunity to kick in.
1: Yep. And what do we reckon
0: herd immunity is? Well, that shifts, right? Fauci famously <laughs> used to say 70% when he was trying to be encouraging and then he was like, uh oh, maybe it's more like 80 or 90%.
1: Well, Australia is pretty behind the time, so I'm going to say that Scott Morrison is pegging it at 70% (laughs) I mean mean but probably true yes so if I'm saying 70% and I'll cut it in the middle by September how many more people do I think would actually and I'm also going to assume that Scott Morrison's being optimistic here
0: I mean that's why I like these bets right because there's so many facets to it so you know it's a question on how many anti-vaxxers are there in Australia it's a question on does the vaccine supply line stay solid it's a question on how much insight do our political leaders have to the uh, vaccine supply line and how much are they just making stuff up
1: yeah exactly exactly so there's a bunch of assumptions here so if i go okay end of the year we might get to 80 percent if i'm taking the fauci herd immunity point and we somehow get to that or 70 percent in september and that comes a little bit late and we stumble into it or you could work the other way and go who's not going to get vaccinated right so you could assume end of the year we're probably going to have enough time to get to 100 percent if we actually put our effort behind it but at the same time there's going to be five percent of people who are deemed not able to get a vaccine regardless of how safe it is i think
0: that the childhood vaccination rates in australia float around that night. 25% mark just as a benchmark. Yep. So that would be the highest I could possibly see us getting to by the end of the year.
1: Yep. So that's a ceiling. And then you've got. You layer on top of that things like how safe are you going to see vaccinating pregnant women because they're not going to have done any studies on that you know layer yep. on top the whole anti-vaxxer thing that you already pointed out or even not people who are not anti-vaxxer right people who are not anti-vaccination but i have definitely heard a lot of people around me in my social circles be skeptical of the safety of these vaccines
0: completely unjustifiably i think but well not completely yes cards on the table i think that the vaccine is perfectly safe and i will take it as soon as it is offered to me but i think that this is the fastest development vaccine ever in the history of humanity. Never have we gone from discovering a virus to having a vaccine about it in less than it's never happened.
1: Yeah, so I think there is arguments for scepticism there. I don't buy those arguments, but at the same time, that could be a factor on how many people are willing to get vaccinated. And then there's going to be the uncertain populations as well, right? So you've got a baseline anti-vaxxer population, you've got the people who, for health reasons, can't get vaccinated, then you've got the populations who there wasn't adequate testing for doctors even to be supportive of vaccinating them. Pregnant women... What percentage and-
0: of the population do you think is pregnant at any given time?
1: God, that's a good question. I don't know. Our birth rate isn't that high so it can't be that many.
0: No, it can't be that high. I wonder 5% of the population of women generally between the ages of say 16 and 40. I'm going to shoot from the hip and say it's 1%. I don't know why. 1% is a, It's a nice round number. Yeah, 1% feels like a reasonable number. Okay, anyway, that's a tangent. bet <laughs> right. on that next time. I promise not to look it up.
1: So I've just laid out like 50 things that are going through my mind and I still haven't actually picked a number. So...
0: No, no. How much does that erode your confidence from 100%? End of the year
1: I'm going to say 75%. I don't know.
0: So Yeah, I sort of don't disagree with you. I just want to be a little optimistic. So I would take the high side of 75% if that's where you're throwing out your ambivalent point.
1: Yeah, I think that's my ambivalent point. I can see the arguments for the higher side, like Australians love to travel and they have international family members, etc.
0: Yeah, yeah. If there's a vaccine passport that you can't go overseas until you get your vaccine, that probably encourages a few of the people. It's like, well, I don't think they've tested enough, but uh, I really want to go to Bali. So I'm just going to get it and I'll take my chances. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there with Bali.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I think 75% is my ambivalent point.
0: I actually agree. I think 75 is a pretty good bet. I think that 95% is the maximum possible. I think a 20% reduction on that based on all the things you said, possibly supply chain disruptions, possibly a few sceptics, possibly us just being more optimistic than we think, or us sending to vaccines into more needy places, possibly another third world country that, you know, and Australia supports a lot of the Pacific sort of thing. We voluntarily give up our vaccines to give the most vulnerable vaccinations within developing nations near and dear to us. So I think that that's enough to arrive twenty percent. I, I honestly could take the low side of that. I just like being optimistic. Yeah. Good on you. All right. Seventy five percent. We've got a bet. If it's over seventy five percent by January first next year, I will win a coffee. And if not, Brian will win a coffee.
1: There we go. Cool. All right, so we come to the end with the Diablo 2 news.
0: Hooray! That's what I look forward to the most.
1: Unfortunately, looking at Diablo.run, there's not too much actually going on in speedrunning at the minute. I think everyone's winding up for the new season of Project Diablo 2. It's their second season. Mm. I think it might have even gone live today. Is
0: that a big deal, isn't it? I I don't know. When you were saying it was a competitor to the actual run made by Blizzard, I assumed that that was a joke. But people are really into this, aren't they?
1: Oh, yeah, they love it. Like I think their first season, they had like 16,000 people playing on the first day. It was crazy. Wow.
0: How many people play on a normal
1: ladder reset? Uh, It's hard to tell with bots. They use a lot of bots on the Uh, Blizzard Online ones, unfortunately. Right.
0: Is that going to ruin our coffee bed on Diablo 2 Resurrected? I don't know what the
1: botting situation is going to look like. I mean, mm, that's going to be hard. Potentially tricky to make a bot for a brand new
0: game. But if the engine under the skin is exactly the same, maybe it's not that hard.
1: Well, they're moving everything to, as I mentioned for Diablo 2 Resurrected, they're moving it to a global shared server. And I'm going to assume that with that, they're going to do some updates and implement like the warden system to catch botters and do more monitoring of people doing dodgy stuff. That may be a naive assumption and maybe it'll only apply for the first like two seasons and by the fourth season they won't care anymore and that'd be bad for Chris but hey. Yep. So not too much happening in Diablo 2 speedrunning. People are winding up for Project Diablo 2. Go check it out. We can chuck another link in the show notes. It's cool. In other Diablo 2 news, last week I did make mention that it would be awful if I've bought this new laptop and then Diablo 2 Resurrected comes out and my laptop can't run it. Oh. Uh. I did check the specs and yeah. the graphics capabilities of my new laptop are like just
0: below the actual no. benchmark minimum requirements. Really? But you have the fancy new Intel graphics card,
1: yeah. So I've got like the XE Iris or whatever it is.
0: I thought it was pretty good.
1: I think it'll be okay. I don't know, I'll give it a crack, but I may have to bum around to my friends and ask if they've got an eGPU that I can use.
0: Oh man, just buy an eGPU, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Then I can borrow it for virtual reality. <laughs>
1: um, and I think in an edited out part of our discussions on D2 Resurrected. Chris asked me about whether I would keep playing uh, one of the characters I've got that's looking for all the items in the game. They have just announced that this week they have patched into D2 Resurrected. You can actually import your old save files from the original Diablo 2. Oh,
0: that's clever. That's great. Well so played. that's cool.
1: So for single player, you can play your old character. So that's Is really gonna cool. Is
0: there going to be single player in the new Diablo 2? Yep.
1: It's all just straight up across. So
0: Man, when's the last time a game got published that allowed single player? I thought we didn't do that since the mid 2000s. I know it's Great. I love it. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) You hate people. It sounds perfect for you.
1: (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, that's kind of the quick Diablo 2 news stuff. The one other item is for the people out there who... Actually, I assume it's actually no one out there who are excited about me launching a commentary of the world record speedrun of the Paladin by Bender Meets Fry. I did it. I recorded it today. It'll be up as at the very least a private YouTube video by the time this episode comes out and we'll put the link to that private one in the show notes i'm going Yay. to ask the original runner i'm going to ask bender before i make it public for anyone to view just to make sure he's cool with it that's but-
0: yep i'll watch it i want you to release it tomorrow so i can watch it tomorrow i'm looking forward to it yep
1: <sighs> so there we go light on the d2 news but that's what everyone loves
0: okay well soon we'll get our d2 audience it's going to explode going to Great. <laughs>
1: sorry i just i shook my head then when i said hate because i feel like i'm pronouncing it as if he's some super villain who's like
0: <laughs> he's john Jonathan hate Haight,
1: brother of nicholas anger